Well, good morning, Valley Bible Church. It's good to be with you virtually uh, yet again, and as Ben mentioned, Lord willing, soon in the flesh. But it is still a privilege to be able to sing, um, even gathered across this fair county. Um, And to be fair to those of you who are outside this county, we're glad that we can sing virtually with you too. Uh, But to raise up these words that we do share in our hearts, thank you to the music team for leading us in worship this morning and the emphasis on the grace of God, which, as we are going to see, is so central uh, to the life and work of Jesus Christ, is meant to be so central to our life and work as well, and definitely shines through in the passage we'll be looking at today. I would encourage you, if you have your copy of God's Word, and if you don't, scramble around. I'm sure you'll find one not too far away from where you're sitting, uh, and grab that. Turn with me to John chapter 5 as we begin the fifth chapter in John's Gospel this morning. And as you're able, and as is convenient, would you uh, stand to honor the reading of God's Word this morning? We're going to be reading John chapter 5, verses 1 to 17, as the text we'll be looking at together today. John chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, says this, After these things there was a feast of the Jews, And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day, so the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin any more, so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we know that you indeed have not ceased working And to this very moment, your work continues. 
and it will continue because that which you have begun, you will bring to completion. The reasons for which you created the heavens and the earth and filled them with life and creative abundance, the reasons for which you placed into this world a creature made after your own image, those reasons will not be frustrated. Your glory will be seen and they will be seen in the glorification of your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would help us this morning in looking at the work, not only that you have done, but the work that your son has done and is doing. We would be reminded of the work that we have to do, that we would be all caught up together in this great gospel work for which everything began and to which everything is moving and in the midst of which you have placed us. And so I ask, Lord, that you would help us in hearing this text to be encouraged and to be challenged and to be obedient. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Those of you out there who are standing, please feel free to grab a seat. And I hope all the kids out there this morning, um, it's not just a ritual to stand and read God's word. We want to give respect to God's word because what we hear with our ears, we want to move to our minds for understanding and from our minds to our heart for belief and then from our heart to our hands for obedience. And so I hope that we gave careful and respectful attention to God's word in its reading as well then as we seek to dive into it and understand and apply it to our lives. The old hymn that I'm sure virtually everybody in all of Christendom knows, Amazing Grace, has that opening lyric, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And really, if there was almost nothing else to that song, I still think that that hymn would have probably endured in the church. Because that simple lyric has captured so well a truth that we not only know from Scripture, but we feel to be so true. That God's grace truly is no less than amazing because of how it is able to bridge the gap between one so holy and perfect and one who, when we are willing to be honest with ourselves, is a wretch. And this morning, we're going to see that gap crossed in this short little story of Jesus and this man at a pool. And I think we're going to see in there an amazing paradigm for the way that God's grace operates, not only in this story, but in general. But I want to set the scene a little bit for our passage because when we come into John chapter 5, we're also coming into a bit of a scene change and even a bit of a plot development in the overall book of John. If this was a play, John chapter 5, I think, would be the beginning of the second act. In the first act, the scene was set, the characters were introduced, the major themes have all been hinted at, and the arc of the story has been set in motion, and there's been some brief moments of excitement and some highlights and things to celebrate, but now the mission of the hero is going to intensify as the opposition and conflict increase. And it is the process that we're going to see starting here that will bring all of these characters and propel them towards the climax of the story and towards the ultimate victory or defeat of the hero. In chapters 5 to 7, we're going to see the attitude of people begin to shift in hostility towards Jesus. 
And Jesus warned the people because he knew this was coming. If you recall Ben's message from last week where he looked at chapter 4, verse 48, and Jesus' admonition, don't follow me for magic tricks. Don't stick around me just for the miracles. And yet the people are going to continue to do just that. But even those great miracles are going to become increasingly problematic, if we want to use a modern word, and hard to stomach when accompanied by both the timing and the teaching of Jesus. The timing of Jesus' miracles are going to be a problem in the text this morning and that he's doing them on the Sabbath, and we're going to see why that's an issue. But we're going to also find that the teaching of Jesus' ministry was going to become murderously enraging to the leaders of Israel so that by verse 18 of this chapter, which we'll get to next week, they're already ready to kill Jesus. And even his words are going to become too difficult to tolerate for many of Jesus' own disciples in an ironically numbered verse, John 6, 66, just two short chapters, or in one short chapter from now, we're going to see Jesus' disciples beginning to turn away. And in just two short chapters, we're going to see Jesus outright accused of demon possession and direct attempts made to arrest him and stop his ministry. And so we are seeing a scene change. We are entering into a new phase in the ministry of Jesus. But through it all, through all the opposition he is now beginning to face, our Savior presses on because he has work to do. As he told his parents at the age of 12, he needs to be about his father's business. As he told his disciples just a few verses ago, his food is to do the will of the Father and to accomplish his work. And as we will see today, Jesus is working. And he is working back in Jerusalem. And so if you would look with me at John chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, it sets the scene for our text this morning. And it begins this way. After these things, Jesus had just finished ministering back up north in Israel, in the region of Galilee, and more specifically, in that city of Cana, where he's done now those two great miracles, initially with the water and the wine, and then last week we saw a miraculous healing. And John is now fading from that scene after having focused on Jesus' ministry there, and he's transitioning us back to focus on an event that happens back in the south to a new setting. And that's why we read, continuing on, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. There are six feasts mentioned in the book of John, and all are clearly identified except for this one. And so we aren't actually sure which feast it is, other than it was an occasion to gather in Jerusalem. The three feasts that required traveling to Jerusalem were Passover, Tabernacles, and Pentecost. So it's possibly one of those three. But most likely, the ministry of Jesus here isn't directly tied to the theme of that feast as the other uh, passages about the other feasts in John are. So I don't think it's just important to the point he's making. But Jesus is heading to Jerusalem with his disciples for a feast. Today, if we were traveling south like Jesus is doing, we would say we're going down somewhere, we're going down to California. But in Jesus' time, whenever you talked about going to Jerusalem, as it says here, you would go up to Jerusalem because it was a reference not to the geographic direction, but to the elevation, the fact that Jerusalem sat on a hill higher than the surrounding lands. And so you always went up to Jerusalem, even though they're heading south. And then we get to this passage. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, 
which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. And I'd like to show you a couple maps at this point to give you an idea of what, uh, where this is taking place and what's going on here. And so I want to thank the, the tech team. They're always scrambling to keep up with us crazy pastors and our new technology ideas. Uh, but I want to show you a, a little map here of where we're coming in. So I hopefully we got it up for you guys to see. We're good. Excellent. All right. So this is a map of Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. The orange outline that you can see shows us where the walls of Jerusalem would have looked like in the time of Christ. And here's the area of the Temple Mount. Um, if you were to journey to Israel today, this a portion of this part of the map uh, of the excuse me, of the temple wall is still visible. It's called the Wailing Wall today. But as we mentioned, Jesus would have been coming down from the north. And so he would have been coming down towards the city of Jerusalem this direction. And he chose to enter at this place, which is called the Sheep Gate. And here's an old photograph of what the Sheep Gate looks like. Just a simple stone entrance on the north side. You can actually read about this entrance all the way back in the book of Nehemiah, where that's described being built out as the wall was reconstructed when God's people returned from exile. But you'll notice on the wall, excuse me, on the map, by this wall to, to enter in from the north, to come through this gate, you would have to pass by these two pools, the sheep's pools, as they were sometimes called, or in our passage, Bethesda. And these pools were constructed to look something like this. They've actually been able to do extensive excavations on these very pools. We have a really good idea of what they actually looked like. And they were essentially two twin pools that were slightly trapezoid in shape. And they were connected by these long colonnaded covered porches or porticos. So four going around the outside edges and then one going right across the middle. So these twin pools right there outside of Jerusalem as you come in covered and colonnaded a really beautiful aquatic center. And we'll get back to the notes here and switch away from the maps. But this would have been a pool filled by probably two sources. One was a large reservoir that was sitting not far away from this pool but also most agree that it was fed by underground natural springs and most likely natural springs that were full of iron minerals because some of our ancient descriptions indicate that the water would take on this reddish hue, especially in conjunction with this stirring of the waters that we'll talk about later. So that's, that's the pool uh, that we're, we're talking about here, this pool of Bethesda. Though referred to in some of your Bibles perhaps as Bethsaida or Bethzatha, uh, which is what this place was referred to in some ancient manuscripts, the most likely, I think the best name for this pool is in fact Bethesda. We actually have found some ancient scrolls, a copper one in particular, that refers to this pool by that name that seems to corroborate that as the correct title. And I think that's a perfect name for this pool because Bethesda literally means house of outpouring or perhaps more directly, house of mercy. And it will be a fitting name indeed for what is about to happen here. And so if we could draw close enough to see underneath those covered porticos of this pool, we would find not an open empty space, but actually a crowded gathering place but not a crowded gathering place for tourists and Romans on vacation, 
No, indeed, because if we look at the next verse, it says, In these porticos lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. All about this pool, probably especially at this time of the year, because it seems like they were anticipating an event that will be described shortly, were those deemed at this time to be the dregs of society, the outcasts of society. Lining the pool were the sick and the weak, the blind and the lame, and those withered by health afflictions. I imagine the, the, in Israel everything's made of limestone. Everything is hard and flat. You know, I just imagine the stone structures and the pool environment served only to amplify and echo an incessant sound of moaning and despair from the, the sick and the suffering. It would have been a beautiful but heartbreaking place to visit. But why are they all here? And that's where we get to this note in verse 4 that clues us in. It says this, They were waiting for the moving of the waters, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first after the stirring up of the water stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. This is really helpful information. It lets us understand what, what, what was a, a superstition at this time. It was a superstition surrounding this pool that if you waited, there would come a moment when an angel would stir the waters, and if you could get in first, you would be cured. It was sort of like the health lottery, except you had to jump into the pool instead of buy a ticket and be the lucky first winner there. Uh, we even have evidence that after Jerusalem was destroyed by Titus Aspasian and renamed and repopulated with Romans, the Romans took the exact same superstition and made it their own and just replaced the angel with a couple of their Roman deities. This pool was just known for being a place of supposed miraculous healing power. And so this is just sort of a helpful note to help us understand the culture. But I also want you to notice that this verse is almost certainly not part of the original text of the Gospel of John. I want to just comment on that briefly. And you can see that because it is surrounded in almost all of your translations by brackets. What does that mean? That means that the translators are telling you that this is almost certainly not part of the original text. How did it possibly end up here then? Well, most likely, during the history of copying and transmitting the text of Scripture, a scribe added a cultural note to help his readers understand what was going here, something that would have been understood quickly and easily by John's original readers, because everybody knew this tradition. But the scribe was concerned that these readers that he was copying his text for wouldn't have that cultural background, and so he was adding it in there for, the, for them. So the question is, well, then why... Why hasn't it been removed? Why do we still print it in our Bibles and put brackets around it if it probably wasn't in the original? And that has to point to the fact that when it comes to copying God's word, there is an extreme caution that has been exercised through the entire history of the preservation of God's word. And here's the basic rule. It is always preferable to leave something in that may not be in the original text and mark it out than to take any chance that you would ever remove a word of God from the Bible. And so even though this verse does not appear in our earliest and best manuscripts, it has been by tradition left in with these brackets to mark it out and an overabundance of caution. And so we might say, boy, 
can I, can I actually trust my Bible then? Like if how many other parts of this Bible, you know, are, are additions and, and how many parts are we worried about? And I want to just encourage us, we don't need to be shaken in our faith because we have a couple of verses in our Bibles that have brackets around them. In fact, I think it highlights the amazing amount of material that we have to work with that God has given us so that we can have an extremely high level of confidence as to what text is in the original. It also supports the incredible intense dedication of Bible translators to being careful that they do not add or take away from God's word, but preserve every line. And it's significant to note that of the very few passages in your Bible that you will find bracketed like this, not a single one adds any significant doctrine to Scripture, and not a single one contradicts any doctrine in Scripture. So we don't need to be afraid of the brackets, but we should know what they mean. And I do appreciate the fact that we do have this little footnote that helps us understand the cultural background of what took place here. So then this is the backdrop of our text this morning. Jesus approaching Jerusalem from the north with his disciples. He's passing by these pools where all these people have found faint hope for the hopeless. And where people would normally just see a sad slice of humanity deserving of pity, Jesus saw a field ready for gospel work. And so our text this morning provides, as I said, a wonderful synopsis of the work of Jesus and a glimpse into how the grace of God operates in a world full of hurting and broken, but sinful, clueless, and conniving people. And I think we will be more encouraged to be more like Jesus, the hero of this story, But I wouldn't be surprised if we also discovered to our embarrassment that we are already too much like some of the other characters. So if you're taking notes this morning, if your kids got your your bulletins, um, I apologize because some of these titles are a little bit longer. But here's here's the thing. They all fit a pattern. So you can write part of the pattern down and then only have to fill out the middle part. Our first point this morning is God's grace contacts the ache of our human condition. We're going to see all of our points this morning have a way of showing us the relationship between the grace of God and our human condition. And the first thing we're going to see is that God's grace contacts the ache of our human condition. And we see that in verses 5 and 6. It begins by saying this, a man was there who had been ill for 38 years. Jesus, walking through the throng of people, spots a specific person who's been dealing with chronic illness for longer than I've been alive. That's just hard to get my head around, especially in a culture like this. Imagine what dealing with a debilitating illness would have been like, what that would have meant for your life. There's no motorized wheelchairs. There's no running water in facilities. There's no programs for housing, food, for assistance. There's no Americans with Disabilities Act to help you integrate into a work environment. Add on top of that the cultural stigma that such a disease as this man suffered with was certainly a divine curse. This man has been eking out an existence that can only be described as miserable for almost 40 years. Jaded, resigned, depressed, angry, bitter, 
probably some combination of all those things. And he's not alone. He is surrounded by others just like him. But he is about to be singled out by the grace of God. Kids, if you're taking notes this morning, let me give you a challenge. If you're right-handed, for the rest of this morning, all your pictures that you're coloring, all the notes that you're taking, do it with your left hand. And if you happen to be blessed by God with being the superior left-handed, then let me challenge you, just for today, try to use your right hand. And I want you to see just how hard it is to do something as simple as switch between two hands that work. And then try to imagine if neither of your hands worked at all, or if your legs didn't work at all, and how difficult life would be for someone like this man. The text goes on to say, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew, and that's a word again, that's not just a knowledge like in a textbook. Oh, I've heard this guy's lame. It's the, it's that experiential word of knowing with understanding. He gets it. He knew that he had already been a long time in that condition. He said to him, do you wish to get well? When God's grace comes to a person, it comes like this. Not every recipient is aware that he or she is in such a condition, but God never sees any of us without beholding a wretch lying there, chronically and hopelessly ill. Jesus approaches this man and with one question begins open-heart surgery. He's pulling to the surface decades of longing in this man's heart. He is surfacing all the frustration and despair. God's grace doesn't connect with us at the level of our Instagram-filtered, carefully orchestrated, artificially enhanced personal public relations campaigns. God's grace comes to us in direct contact with the ache of our human souls. That is where God meets us. Do you wish to get well? You are sick. Would you like that to change? In one sense, Jesus asks the most obvious question in the world. But it's also the question I'll bet nobody else would have asked. Because the answer is assumed, and any other asker would have been powerless to respond. It would be cruel for someone to go to a hospital and enter the room of somebody who had been chronically ill for 38 years and say, Do you wish to get well? Oh, yes. More than anything. Yeah, I thought so. Really... Really, it's too bad, isn't it? That would just be cruel. That's when the nurse comes along and says, Sir, you really need to leave now. But from one with the power to heal, this question becomes something else entirely. It is the very embodiment of hope itself. Sadly, as is the case for all of fallen mankind, this man is unable to understand the offer that has just been made to him. 
and he is not aware of the one who is making it. But before we look at his response, a few lessons for us today. First is this, God sees you lying there. God sees you lying there. He sees all of us. This man was not the only one that he noticed. And in the omniscience of God, there is not a human creature upon this planet that he does not take notice of. In fact, as Jesus would teach later, if there is not a sparrow that can fall without his notice, how much more do you think he not just knows about, but knows about your life? And not the version of your life that your family knows or that your friends know or that your online acquaintances or business partners or the people around you in your social circles know, but he knows your soul. He knows it at a level only the one who made it could know. In fact, it is not an exaggeration to say God sees you more than you see yourself. He sees you lying there. If you're going through something right now, especially I want to just encourage those in our body who find this particular trial especially painful because of the isolation that it has brought. I know some of you are stuck alone. And it seems like nobody sees, and perhaps some days it feels like nobody cares. And you're still dealing with stuff. Your heart is still hurting. You have trials. You have burdens. You have things you are struggling with. And I just want to encourage you this morning. God sees you with a sight that is full not only of knowledge, but of understanding. And as we're going to see in a minute, full of grace. And I also want to then follow that lesson up with this one. Great suffering does not mean small grace. Great suffering does not mean small grace. If God has allowed you to have great suffering in your life, it is not because he has determined that for you there will be little grace. This man had been sick for 38 years. And as we're going to see, it looks like he's the kind of guy that hadn't done anything to make anybody feel like he deserved better. But God's grace is bigger than his trial. God's grace is bigger than his suffering. And I just want to encourage again, those of you who have been in seasons of long and great suffering and trial, that is not an indication of God's affection for you, nor is that a marker of any limitation on the grace that he will desire to bestow upon you. God's grace will not always come and look exactly like it did at this pool. But for God's children, God's grace is always there. And for those who are even today God's enemies, God's grace is always available. Great suffering does not mean small grace. And thirdly, the question that just needs to ring into our ears as it did into this man's ears is this, do you wish to get well? Do you wish to get well? Most fundamentally, that question needs to strike each of us in relation to the broken relationship that we have with God. 
Are, do you want to see the problem of sin dealt with? But it's not limited only to that, though we're going to talk about that more later. The afflictions of our soul are to be brought to the one with both the power and the compassion and the availability who says to us, do you wish to get well? Well may not look like what we expected it to look like. And we're going to see this man in particular had a completely wrong idea of how God was going to go about dealing with his wellness. But God rich in mercy, full of compassion, the God of all comfort is the one who says to us, cast your cares upon me because I care for you. Do you wish to get well? Thirsty people want water but they don't always know where to get it. Skeletons in the desert bear sad witness to the fact that thirsty people will too often chase a mirage. This man, as we're going to see this morning, has been chasing one himself, along with all the others at the pools that day. But I want us to see what the grace of God through Jesus Christ does next. Because not only does God's grace contact this man at the point of the ache of his soul, but God's grace, as we're going to see, cures the brokenness of our human condition. In verses 7 to 13, we read, The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. I want you to notice the response of this man to Jesus reveals a deep flaw in his thinking. Had he known who he was talking to, he would have simply said, Yes, I do want to get well. I can't even tell you how much I wish to get well. Can you help me? Instead, this man does something that we all do so easily. Instead of seeking the supernatural grace we need to overcome impossible challenges, we fixate on useless solutions that we think are within our control. Jesus asks this man if he wants to get well, and the man simply says, you know what, Jesus, I've got a logistics problem. See, I've got this all worked out. I've got a pool right here. It's a magic pool. And so I'm pretty much all set with one problem. I just need someone to help make my plan work. You know, this time, surely this time, my plan is going to work. And boy, do we fall into this trap. When our conscience is pricked with that question, do you want to get well? How often do we answer just like this man? No, I'll be fulfilled. I just need to land that new position at work. No, I'll be happy, just need to get the right girlfriend, boyfriend, spouse, new spouse. I'll be content, I just need the right pill. I'll be free of this addiction, I just need to try harder next time. I just need one more book, one more blog, one more technique, one more doctor, one more outburst of tears, one more plea for a second chance, one more, one more, just one more 
then it will be well with my soul. Kids, when something really gets broken or something is really in danger, what do you need to do? You know, right? Go tell mom and dad. But what do we so often naturally do? We try to fix it or hide it. And while we're doing that, we're inventing the excuses that we're going to use if we get caught. How much trouble would some of you children be spared if you had chosen the right time to turn to your parents and done so immediately and with an honest plea for help? How much trouble would we be spared if we turned first and fiercely to Christ at the instant of realization that there is trouble in our lives? We can perhaps try to excuse this sick man for not comprehending who he was speaking with. We can sympathize with his desperate attempt to find healing in a simple pool with even a a remote superstitious hope. But do we have any excuse? Those of us who have come to know the Savior and Lord for our frequent running away from him to try diving into our own pools. How thankful must we be that God's grace is not in response to the virtue of our faith, but to the measure of God's love for faithless people. Jesus said to him, You're all wrong, dude. Man, I'm wasting my time on you. I'm sure there's some other sick person around here who's willing to have a bit more of a clue than you. No, Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. These words, just seven words in the Greek, changed this man's life forever. This is the power of divine grace when it comes crashing into the life of one of his creatures. Get up! says Jesus, abandon your place beside this pool and its false promise of help. And I want you to see the radical and undeniable nature of this miracle. Jesus isn't doing some sketchy healing on some stranger who came into town who only recently had begun to complain of a limp. Jesus is healing a man so incapacitated that he can't roll himself into a pool unassisted and who has been in this condition publicly for 38 years. If this was a fraud, it was set up before Mary even knew she was going to be pregnant with Jesus. And the healing was not like we sometimes see today, where you have this person who's full of hope and hopped up on adrenaline, hobbling on a broken angle for a bit, only to spend days in agony afterwards. No, this healing was complete. It was immediate. And it transformed this man from needing help to plop into a pool to picking up his own bedroll and parading around comfortably with it. 
It is a sign of the power, an authenticating sign of the power of the Messiah as prophesied in the Old Testament, a sign that John is showcasing for us to prove the credentials of the king. But it also profoundly demonstrates the Savior's grace. And it shows us God's grace is efficacious. That simply means God's grace gets work done. It accomplishes something. His grace isn't a nice car wash for a car up on blocks. It's a complete engine rebuild. When we are saved, we become a new creation. The old has passed away and the new things have come. Now it's true. Not all of the effects of God's grace are instantaneous like this man's healing. Every believer is part of a process whereby we are being renewed in the whole man after the image of God. And this process of becoming like Jesus is called sanctification. And it's a process that continues until we are perfected in glory. Make no mistake, though, the grace of God that he sets upon us at the moment of our aching souls is the grace that will continue its persistent work until we are completely cured. Cured of the sorrow of our brokenness, cured of the symptoms of our brokenness, and as we are going to look at in a minute, cured of the source of our brokenness. At the moment we receive the grace of God in salvation, we go from dead to alive, from lame to walking, from blind to seeing, but we continue by grace to learn how to live abundantly, how to run with endurance, how to see reality in all its fullness as God sees it. What a marvelous thing grace is. The kindness of God according to the power of God latching onto us in an instant and remaining upon us for an eternity. With such a brilliant revelation of God's grace here displayed, we would expect a mighty revival to break out, right? For, for all to bow the knee to the Messiah who has power over sickness itself, right? Well, I'm afraid we're about to see yet again the depths of just how misguided we often are, even in the very center of God's displays of grace. Continue on with me now. It was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. John writes, oh, by the way, it was the Sabbath day. And all good Jews reading this would have probably instantly known where this was going. Oh, no. They're in trouble. This man, having been cured, runs, or rather walks, right into the Sabbath police. And notice that not a single time in this whole account do any of the Jews pause to ask, how are you cured? They don't even question the authenticity of the miracle. They ignore it entirely. From beginning to end, they have one concern. Who broke our rules? 
And we're going to see this conversation is between the petty and the coward. And first up is the petty Jewish leaders. Hey, you can't do that. We have a rule about carrying pallets on the Sabbath. Now, it's true that God commanded no work to be done on the Sabbath, but he did not itemize exactly which activities constituted work. But that's no problem because the Jewish rabbis took care of that for him. According to the rabbinic interpretation of God's Sabbath commandment in Mishnah Shabbat 7.2, it says the primary labors are 40 less one. Sowing, plowing, reaping, binding, sheaves, threshing, winnowing, selecting, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking, shearing wool, bleaching, heckling, dyeing, spinning, weaving, the making of two loops, weaving two threads, dividing two threads, tying and untying, sewing two stitches, tearing in order to sew two stitches, capturing a deer, slaughtering or flaying or salting it, curing its high, scraping it of its hair, cutting it up, writing two letters, erasing in order to write two letters over the erasure, building, tearing down, extinguishing, kindling, striking with a hammer, and carrying out from one domain to another. These are the 40 primary labors, less one. And they had, of course, determined exactly which activities fit into each of these categories. Spitting on the ground, for example, that left a divot, plowing, not allowed. Picking up your pallet and carrying it was moving something from one domain to another because your pallet was your domain because you slept on it. Clearly a violation of the Sabbath. I want you to see the brave response of this man who had just been miraculously healed. Good sirs, I have been made well by divine power. Surely he who put my broken body back together in an instant knows a thing or two about the Sabbath you might have missed. I think I'm going to just go ahead and follow his commandments instead. Yeah, not so much. He meekly tries to dodge the questions. Oh, that guy told me to. The Jewish leaders are more concerned with someone who would dare tell a person to break the Sabbath rules, more so even than the actual lawbreaker. And again, no interest at all in the miracle. So they push this guy for information on the identity of the lawbreaker, but he doesn't know. He actually walked off without even asking Jesus for his name. And when he looked back, Jesus had done what he often did, slipped away. All he can do is shrug, but hey, at least now he can shrug. The fact that this guy is trying to ingratiate himself to these Jewish leaders is clear in the fact that shortly he will learn the identity of Jesus and immediately run back and report it to these Jewish leaders whose only interest is obviously going after Jesus for being a lawbreaker. This is not his finest hour. But get this. Jesus knew this man's heart before he healed him. And he still healed him. He still picked him out of that sea of broken humanity. The grace of God is not repulsed by our pain, and neither is it repelled by our ugliness of heart and character. Our culture has learned that showing your hurting side can be a powerful manipulator. If we learn how to be perpetual victims, we can garner sympathies and the resources of others. So we have an entire industry training and supporting the revealing of all of our hurts, real and imagined, for the purpose of manipulation in the guise of vulnerability. Am I saying that sharing our burdens with one another is to be discouraged? Heavens no. Is manipulating people sin? You bet. Here's the thing, though. Our culture is constantly finding new ways to display its hurts 
but it desperately hides its wretchedness. We are fine being seen as damaged, but we would never allow ourselves to be revealed as not only damaged, but damnable. This man's body was made well, but his heart was still in a sorry state. And Jesus is about to apply grace to that need as well. But first, a couple quick lessons. First is this. Don't tell Jesus how to fix your life. Don't tell Jesus how to fix your life. We so often go to God and we say, God, I have this problem. And so here's what I need you to do for me. God, uh, there's, there's trouble at work. There's this conflict going on. I'm kind of miserable. I need you to give me a better job. God, we're in this uh, marital conflict right now and we keep fighting and we just don't ever seem to see eye to eye. And so I just need you to like teach my wife to figure it out. We want to go and tell Jesus how to fix our problems. And most of our solutions are things that we can wrap our heads around, that we can understand, that we have some control over, and ultimately that usually don't make us the real bad guy. Don't tell Jesus how to fix your life. Ask Jesus to fix your life and then buckle up. Because he will apply a solution through his word and through his providences that will minister grace to your soul. For you kids, you can practice doing this in prayer with the Lord, but you can also take advantage of the grace of parents that love you and do this. Ask your parents right now or ask them over lunch and say, Mom, Dad, where do I need to grow the most to be like Jesus? And what should it look like in my life to become more like Jesus? Secondly, I want to tell you, encourage us with this. Watch for signs of grace. Watch for signs of grace. Watch so that we don't miss what God is doing. Because so often all we see are the problems. All we see are the conflicts. All we see are the things that we don't like. And we miss what God is actually already doing in the situation. This can be so powerful in the context of broken relationships. We're often all we see is the source of the quarrels. All we see is the flaw in character and lifestyle and habits. And all we see is the mismatch in personalities. And if we would train ourselves to say, God, help me to see your grace at work in that person's life and to be thankful for it. In small things or great things, I want to see that you are doing your work in your way and in your timing. Watch for signs of what God is doing in you, in those around you, and the grace that he supplies even in the midst of the trials that he has chosen not to take away at this time. And then thirdly, don't ingratiate yourself to the ungracious. Don't ingratiate yourself to the ungracious. How many times does God do something for us reveal himself to us. Our souls are thrilled. And then we run out into a social context where people are not as excited about God as we are. And so all of a sudden we're trying to make them happy. We're trying to fit in with their expectations. We're trying to cower under their authority. That doesn't make sense. 
If God is the one who took dead you and made alive you, stick with him. Let your allegiance be to him. He doesn't need your defense, but he asks for your loyal support. Don't ingratiate yourself to the ungracious. If you want to, to make much of your Savior, get used to a world that doesn't like you very much and be okay with that. As we've already discussed, this man's afflictions were not merely external. His real ruin was of the soul. And Jesus isn't done being gracious. And so I want us to look next here at God seeking this man out for the second time in a day to give him an important message. God's grace has come to meet him at the ache of his soul. God's grace has come to cure the symptoms of his broken humanity. And now God's grace is going to convict the source of his human condition. Look with me at verses 14 and 15. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse happens to you. This is probably not the grace that this man expected. When he saw Jesus again, his face must have been beaming. Hey, you've made me well. But I wonder what expression was on his face by the time Jesus left. God's grace doesn't simply deal with the symptoms of our brokenness. It deals with the source, and that source is sin. Listen carefully, because this is a common error. Sickness and suffering are not always the result of any specific personal sin on our part. In fact, we're going to meet another suffering man in just a few chapters, and Jesus is going to tell us explicitly in John 9, 3, that in his case, his affliction had nothing to do with his sin or even the sin of his parents. But sometimes, as is the case here, there is a direct connection between our sin and our suffering. Throughout Scripture, sickness, leprosy, blindness, even death, are sometimes attributed directly to God's discipline or punishment for our personal sin. We don't know what this man had done or was doing, but the grammar of what Jesus says here is pretty clear. His condition was connected directly to some pattern of sin in his life, and Jesus is calling him to repentance. Sometimes trials enter our lives to demonstrate and forge our faith in Christ, and sometimes they happen for reasons too grand and too intricate for us to ever understand. But sometimes God uses trials to grab the attention of distracted sinners and wear down their pride. This man had been in his condition, remember, for 38 years. And yet Jesus warns him to repent so that nothing worse will happen. What could be worse than 38 painful, miserable, impotent, humiliating years of debilitating sickness? Ultimately, the answer is the same, no matter who asks it. What is worse is eternal suffering apart from the gracious presence of God. 
One of the markers of God's grace is that it isn't a veneer. It's not a thin and attractive covering concealing what lies below. God's grace always moves toward, moves us towards holiness. God's grace digs in deep. And I wonder if this man ever got the message. We read his response. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. I have to think that this man took the wrong path at a fork in the road here. There is no record of him asking Jesus how to turn from his sin. There's no confession of his wrongdoing. There's no seeking to follow Jesus as his disciple. Instead, he immediately goes to report Jesus to the Jewish leaders by name and sets in motion some of the first concentrated persecution in the ministry of Jesus. How sad. It's very good for you and me that the grace of Jesus cannot be discouraged or canceled out of frustration. But we will see this in our last couple of verses in just a moment. First, I want to draw a couple quick lessons from this portion of the text. And the first is this. Grace heals what hurts, but often hurts while it heals. Grace heals what hurts, but often hurts while it heals. I have a child that has a unique ability. If there is a little piece of wood sticking up out of a floor surface within about three miles of our home, this child will come home with that in their foot. And extracting slivers from a child, as many of you know, is tough. You feel like you're on an episode of some, like, medical show. You need nurses and doctors, and you want to say everything stat for some reason. It hurts to remove a sliver. They don't like you going anywhere near it, especially when the needle comes out. If you've got to dig in and find the sliver that's now below the surface, not fun. But what relief comes immediately after that sliver is gone? It is grace to dig the sliver out, not to leave it to fester, to infect, to possibly even kill the child. God's grace doesn't simply put a band-aid over the ugly infection of our sin. It digs in and removes it, and that can hurt. And the more we still love our sin, the more that grace hurts. But just because God is doing painful surgery on his heart doesn't mean he is a cruel parent. It means he is more gracious and more courageously gracious than we would ever be willing to be with our own soul. Second, heaven isn't for the fulfilled, it's for the forgiven. It's for the forgiven. God doesn't come and give us his grace so that we can have our best lives now. He doesn't come and give us his grace so that we can feel lots of self-esteem, so that we can go out and just be confident to live our fully maximalized selves. God's grace is poured out on our brokenness, not so that we can become the hero, but so that we can receive from the hero the forgiveness that can only be granted because he does what we can't and what we won't. We are counted righteous because he 
is righteous, and everybody who gets to heaven is going to have to acknowledge that. I was listening to a sermon this week, and the pastor mentioned a famous preacher who on his deathbed was told by a a fellow member and leader in his church, you're about to go and receive your eternal reward. He said, no, I'm going to receive mercy. When you are in trouble, when your soul is troubled, the goal is not to get out of trouble. Whether you're in a child or whether you're an adult, the goal is to become more like Jesus. And to do that, we must have grace. So ask for grace today. John Newton wrote a hymn called The Pool of Bethesda. It was published in The Christian's Duty, exhibited in a series of hymns, 1791. Man, we need more hymnals with titles like that. We'll try to have the words up on the screen for you, but it says this, Beside the gospel pool appointed for the poor, from year to year my helpless soul has waited for a cure. How often have I seen the healing waters move and others round me stepping in their efficacy prove. But my complaints remain. I feel the very same as full of guilt and fear and pain as when as first I came. Oh, would the Lord appear my malady to heal? He knows how long I've languished here and what distress I feel. How often have I thought, why should I longer lie? Surely the mercy I have sought is not for such as I. But whither can I go? There is not other pool where streams of sovereign virtue flow to make a sinner whole. Here, from day to day, I'll wait and hope and try. Can Jesus hear a sinner pray, yet suffer him to die? No, he is full of grace. He never will permit a soul that fain would see his face to perish at his feet. Don't sit at the edge of the gospel pool. It is good news for all sinners. It meets us where our souls ache. It cures our souls of all that is broken and ugly, and it alone is capable of dealing with our sin. And the grace of God in the gospel isn't accountable to any human limitations. There is no such thing as a stay-at-home order for the grace of God. And that is our last point briefly this morning in the last two verses. God's grace continues without human condition. Yes, I'm equivocating on the word condition. You can give me grief about it later. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Having learned Jesus' name, the Jews begin their campaign against him. And notice it says they were persecuting him. At this point, there was no arrest. They weren't throwing stones. There was no physical violence that had taken place. So how then were they persecuting him? This is a truth we need to remember. Most, most persecution is in the form not of physical violence, but of verbal slander. 
they began to speak evil untruths about Jesus. They declared the Lord of the Sabbath to be a Sabbath breaker. They declared the perfect law keeper to be a law breaker. They said the innocent was guilty. These were the charges being levied against Jesus. The charges were formal and in this society quite serious. As always, however, next to Jesus, the efforts of men always end up looking like the bumbling efforts of the goofy bad guys in an old kid's Disney movie. And Jesus is absolutely going to nail them to the wall with his response. But he answered them, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. The construction of that phrase, he answered them, is very unusual in scripture. The grammar there is very unusual, but it was very common in legal documents. It's as though John is trying to emphasize this is Jesus's formal legal response to the ridiculous accusations put against him. And wow, what a response it is. So the issue is working on the Sabbath. So Jesus says, all right, let's talk about that. He begins by saying, my father is working until now. Now, they would have not liked Jesus personally calling God his father because they tended to only use that language, if ever, about the entire nation and not an individual. But they would have agreed with his basic point because even the rabbis taught that God's Sabbath rest was not a complete stopping of all of his activities. Otherwise, the universe would have fallen instantly to pieces. And so God still worked to maintain his creation, even though he was resting. Thus, they argued, for God, there is a kind of working that doesn't count as work. And they even had a great loophole, an explanation for why it didn't count as work. They taught it's because the whole universe is God's domain. He owns everything and inhabits everything. And so whatever he is doing in creation... It's just like walking about in his own house. He never leaves his own domain. So God gets a pass on the Sabbath because he is God and he owns everything. Do you see where this is going? Do you see why, as we'll get to next week, the next verse, they're going to try to kill Jesus? Look at what he says next. My father is working until now, and here comes a bombshell, and I myself am working. You ask how I dare work on the Sabbath? I am justified in my work on the Sabbath by the same reasoning as my father is justified. These words from a man who just miraculously healed the incurably sick should have resulted in a circle of Jewish leaders on their faces in worship before Jesus, the obvious divine Messiah. Instead, they will try to kill him. But here's the thing. They can hate the work that Jesus does. They can hate Jesus as he works, but they can't stop either. The grace of God isn't subject to human approval. The grace of God isn't limited by human authority. God's grace accomplishes everything it sets out to do from beginning to end, from heaven to earth, from sinners dead in their trespasses and sins to the sons of God perfected in glory. Hallelujah. Our final lessons this morning are two. You may trust the grace of of God because nothing can stop it. His promises will come true when you have put your faith in him. He will complete his work, his gracious gospel work in your life and in your circumstances and in your soul. 
It will happen. You may trust the grace of God. And finally, you must trust the grace of God. There is no other grace. There is no other help. There is nowhere else to turn. Everything else is a silly pool that bubbles water. And if you put your faith in that, you might get wet. You'll never get well. We may trust the grace of God. We must trust the grace of God. And the good news for us is that any sinner who cries out to God will receive the grace of God. Whatever the state of your soul is today, ask for the grace you need and receive it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us grace. What a shudder it is to contemplate what we would have if we received what we are due. But just as you have loved your son, so through your son you have loved us. The victory of your son over where we failed has become our victory in him. And the incomprehensibility of his righteousness being credited to our account fills us with hope today. I pray if there is anyone listening to this message young or old, who has yet to come to that gospel pool and say, I wish to be well, would they do so today and receive in an instant the grace that will accompany them forever? And for us who have known you, have been called by your name, may we continue to stand in grace, to walk in grace, and to cooperate with your grace and the power of your spirit as it transforms us day by day into the very image of of your gracious Son. This we beg with the confidence of knowing it is according to your will. In the name of Christ, amen.